0: All right, when you go about the process of reading the Bible with the intent of studying it, so there is a difference between devotional reading and studying the Bible. I'm going to highly recommend that we become students. We study to show ourselves approved instead of just reading devotionally. So uh, there's, a, there's a strategy to use when you go about studying the Bible, it's a four-step strategy. The first step is observation. So you have the first step of observation and it answers the question, what does the text say? The second step is interpretation. What does the text mean? It answers that question. The third step is correlation. What does the text mean? in relation to the whole. Now, I want to mention at this point in time that correlation seemed to have a bigger role in exposition back in my day. Uh, Now, if you go to Bible college or seminary and you learn exposition, they don't stress correlation quite as much as they did when I was younger. Um, But I think it's important, and so I think it has a place, so I will be using it in this way and uh, making it an important step, but uh, it's probably not the most important step, but at the same time, in my opinion, it still is. Uh, And then the fourth step is application. What does the text mean to me? Now, these four steps have uh, importance and they have an importance in a couple directions and I'm gonna relate those to you. One of them is the order of these steps is critical to correct interpretation. You cannot change the order. So, when you study the Bible, you want to start with observation. Then you want to move to interpretation. Then you want to move to correlation. Then you want to move to application. The danger for modern audiences is that we jump immediately to application. So you've probably all experienced uh, times in your small groups or your Bible studies or whatever it is you're involved in, and you read a text and someone says, well, what does this text mean to you? Or what they initially start with is, what does this text, what this text means to me is, and that's actually the step of Application, which is the fourth step. What does this text mean to me is an application question. And it's the fourth step of Bible study. And if you start there, you inevitably are going to get it wrong. You have to stay in this order. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Do not Even move to the next step until you've completed the work of the previous one or ones. Okay? The next thing, the next truth about uh, these four steps is this. The amount of time spent in the first step, that's the step of observation, determines the accuracy and ease of the following steps. So if you read the text and say to yourself, oh, okay, I've I've observed everything I can observe. I'm moving on because I'm bored. You will have trouble with interpretation, correlation, and correct application because you haven't spent enough time in observation. So the amount of time you spend in observation makes interpretation, correlation, and application much more accurate and far easier. So if you're having trouble interpreting the Bible, just spend more time up in observation, right? Now, which leads me to this point for you today. This class is set up in the same way as the four steps. And it's set up, I think, with the right amount of weight placed in each step. So we have a step of observation And I'm suggesting to you that that's kind of where the bulk of your time must go. And the bulk of our time together is going to go on observation. So there's four steps to Bible study. We're going to spend all of today and most of next Tuesday on observation. And after we've done all the work of observation, we're going to interpret, correlate, and apply just quickly. And you're going to go, oh. That's right, because we're going to do the work of observation. So the work of observation gets about 70, 75% of the time. So when I teach this class in Sunday school classes, oftentimes I'm given a quarter. So a church will have me come in and I'll do a a one-quarter Sunday school for the adults on how to study the Bible. Of the 13 weeks in a quarter... I'm spending 10 on observation and 3 on interpretation, correlation, and application. The class is weighted in the same way as I hope you take home the emphasis for your own personal study. So just know we're going to spend all the rest of today figuring out what to observe and how to observe it. But in the end, you're going to be glad you did. Right? You're going to come to the end of today and you're going to go, that was a long day, but I kind of get the picture. And it will be worth it in the end, one can hope. So, what I'm going to suggest to you is, since every composition has a single theme, it's the subject that the composition is written about, the first thing you want to do is identify the theme. The first thing you want to do is find... What is the subject of this particular book of the Bible? Every composition has a theme. You have to discover it. So, when you open your Bible to whatever, in your daily devotions, in your church, or whatever, and you turn to a passage, that passage, passage sits in a book, the book has a subject. And you do not know what that passage is talking about unless you first of all identify the subject that we're talking about. You really don't know because it's the big thing that informs the little thing. You never are able to look at the details of something until you first of all looked at the subject you're addressing. You have to know what you're talking about to understand what's being said. Now let me me show this to you. So uh, I could use the word fire, right? Fire conveys meaning. It's a word that contains meaning. But the meaning right now is not very specific. And if I said the word fire you might not be thinking all on the same page. Because fire could mean a flame. That kind of a fire. It could mean terminate an employee. It could mean fire up. It could mean ready, set, fire. But you don't know what I mean by the word fire until you get the bigger picture. The same thing is true in Scripture. You do not know what... Galatians 2.7 is talking about or how it's intended to be meant unless you know what Galatians is talking about and this is a part of it. You really don't. So you have to identify the big thing first. It's the biggest literary feature. So you start big and work little. The same thing is true of a sentence, by the way. So I could give you a sentence and you'd understand the sentence But you wouldn't really know its meaning. So I could say Johnny ran. You'd all understand that there's a boy running. That would be your understanding. But you wouldn't have any real meaning attached to that sentence without the larger context attached to it. So, Johnny was walking down a street at night. And a big man stepped out of the shadows. And Johnny ran. Now, What if I said, Johnny was walking down the street late one night and a big man stepped out of the shadows and Johnny ran into his arms. Completely different story, right? Because now you have a bigger context. Or I could say something like this. The center snapped the ball to the quarterback. The quarterback turned and handed it off to Johnny and Johnny ran. Completely different context completely different meaning to the sentence, Johnny Rand, as soon as you attach it to a larger context. The same thing is true in your Bible study. When you go to read the Bible, it's the larger literary unit that actually informs the details. And I would suggest to you, you cannot read the details rightly unless you understand the subject about which it's written. And if you don't understand the subject, you don't understand the details. That's how important that first point is of observation. What do you observe first? You try to find the theme. Because the subject in biblical terminology is theme. Galatians has a theme, and it's the theme that gives meaning to the sentence, you reap what you sow. And if you don't know the theme, you will butcher that other verse. Thessalonians has a theme. Philippians has a theme. Matthew has a theme. We're going to be looking at some of them your job first is to find the biggest literary unit and identify the theme. The question is, how do you go about that? How do you go about it? How do you go about identifying the theme? The first thing you want to do is try to find what we call background information. This is the first step of identifying the theme, but also the first step of Bible study. Knowing the background information is important and it's important in and of itself, but the the reason why it's important for this class anyway is because once you know this, you can identify the theme a lot better, a lot easier. The background information leads you to the subject that the book is talking about. And so when you open the book, you're looking for the theme, but you're gonna first of all identify the author the audience, the occasion, and the purpose. And the author is who wrote it, the audience is who did he write it to, the occasion is why did he write it, what was going on in the the audience that necessitated the writing of this book. Something was happening, a situation in in the the churches of Galatia, for example, that, that, that caused the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to write the book of Galatians because he had to address that issue. That's the occasion. Something was going on there, and God said, My people need this, Paul. Write this book. That's the occasion. The purpose is what the author, big letter A, small letter A, hoped to accomplish in the audience from writing the book. So here's why I'm writing. That's the occasion or the the reason. And here's what I hope to accomplish with it. That's the purpose. So you want to read the Bible looking for those four things. And here's the logic of it. The author wrote to a particular audience for a reason with a specific purpose. That's the logic. So uh, when you write a letter to someone, you're writing a letter to someone for something. Right? That's how it works. Same thing is true with the Bible. So you want to try to identify this. Now, how do you identify this? How do you go about identifying it? Most of the time, this information is right there in front of you. You just have to read it intentionally looking for it. Most of the time, it's right there, especially in the New Testament epistles. It's not universally true. You don't, we always don't know who wrote it. But much of the time, it's right there in front of you. I'm gonna show you some of this. And uh, notice uh, Philippians one and one. Paul and Timothy. Oh, there's your author right there. So uh, I would actually uh, apply these steps to my Bible study. I would have a notepad in front of me. I would say I'm gonna teach Philippians next. I would open my Bible and start looking for background material and I would get to the first phrase of verse 1, and I would actually handwrite on my pad, author, Paul. And I would read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, audience to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And I would put on my page, audience, colon, saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and I would then move on. Right there in front of you, you have author and audience. It's all over the Bible that way. Here's another another reference. This is Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, it didn't take very much work, to identify author-audience in these passages because it's directly stated. It's stated right there. You just have to read intentionally looking for it. So if you're opening the Bible intentionally looking to find the author and audience, you'll find it in many of the books of the Bible. It's not always that easy, okay? Some of the books of the Bible don't have uh, this statement uh, up front, okay? So, Uh, for example, the book of Hebrews was one of them. You can read Hebrews till you're blue in the face and the author remains unstated. He does not tell his name or who he is. In fact, scholars debate on who wrote the book of Hebrews. But I'd like to suggest to you, even in that case, it's important to us. It's important to us that we don't know the author of Hebrews because it's part of his theme. So he didn't give his name intentionally because he was making a point by not giving his name. And it's subtle, but somewhere in the book of Philippians, he says this. He says, someone somewhere wrote. And then he quotes a very familiar psalm. He knows who wrote the psalm, and he knows which psalm it is, and he didn't tell us. He said, someone somewhere wrote. Because it doesn't matter who wrote the psalm. It doesn't matter that it happens to have a number attached to it. What matters is that behind that someone, there is a someone with a capital S. And that someone wrote from God. And what matters when you read that psalm or when you read Hebrews is not the human And the author of Hebrews is making a very important point. It doesn't matter who I am. This is God's word, just like the Psalms. He's making a point out of that. Most of the books of the Bible have it. Some don't, and there might be a reason for it. There are other books of the Bible that don't have an author at all. They have what's commonly referred to as an editor, or a compiler. So if you were to read First and Second Kings, and by the way, that was one book at one time, it was one scroll, and they would have had it all on a scroll and they would have rolled it up to wherever they were reading in. Uh, when we designed books of the Bible with a spine, right, we were able to separate it and make it more manageable. So at that time when they designed this type of a book with a printing press and so forth, it became first and second Kings. Because you and I would get really tired of reading Kings if it went from 1 Kings 1 to 2 Kings uh, 36 or whatever ends up 2 Kings. I don't know off the top of my head. But, but that's a long book. And so we broke it in two so that readers today wouldn't get tired reading it. But it's really one book. And so when the author, or in this case the compiler and editor, wrote that book, here's what he said in 1 Kings 11. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? So here's what he's telling you. I went into the presidential library, and I did some research. And in the presidential library of Solomon, there's all of the acts. Everything he did is there. And if you want to know about him, go to the presidential library of Solomon and read about it. But I have picked this stuff out of all that material, and I've included these parts of Solomon's life because I have a reason for writing. I have a subject, and these things relate to my subject, and the rest of the stuff, other stuff didn't. He was selective because he's writing about something with a particular uh, reason and purpose. So later on, if you were reading, looking for this stuff, you'd come to 1 Kings 14:19, and it says, "Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel." Now, if you know the history of the of of uh, Israel, which I'm sure you do, being good Christian school students, uh, Israel was a unified nation under Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was kind of a jerk. And the the nation divided between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And the northern tribes set up their own government under Jeroboam. And the editor actually went into the presidential library of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he did research and he wrote all this research down and he included it in here. And he said, if you want to know about the rest of the stuff they did, Go to the presidential library. But I've picked this stuff out because I am editing that material because I'm writing about a subject. And this fits my subject, and that doesn't. If you were to read looking for this information, you'd come to 1 Kings 15 and verse 23, and it says, Now the rest of... All the acts of Asa, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? What is the author telling us? I didn't write this material. I edited it. I went into the presidential library of the unified kingdom, and I picked stuff out of Solomon's reign. I went into the Presidential Library of the Northern Kingdom and I picked stuff out of their records. And then I went into the Presidential Library of the Southern Kingdom and I picked stuff out of their records. I edited this material because I have a purpose for what I'm writing about and this suits my purpose. There's no author to this. There's an editor, inspired by God, looking at history books, pulling information. Now, I don't know how many times you've read 1 and 2 Kings. Hopefully you've read it. They're great books. But you probably didn't notice these verses. You probably read it and didn't realize he was saying this. But I'm suggesting to you, this is really important. And he did it intentionally. Because he's not writing to the people who lived at that time. The Presidential Library of Solomon was already written and accumulated and stored. And here was a guy that lived at some point later on, and he decided to do some research and went into the library And the people of Solomon were already dead and gone. But he was living way after that. And he went and researched that material. He went into the presidential library of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was dead and gone. He lived way after that. And he edited that material. He went into the presidential library of Asa. And he edited it. Asa was dead and gone. And what he's telling you is, I've selected pieces of history because they're really important to you who are living today. And you need to hear this message from God that comes out of your national history. And so what we know by this is he was being selective because he has a subject, he has a reason, he has a purpose. And he lived way later then the material. Now all of a sudden that helps you identify the audience. The audience was not the people in Solomon's reign or Asa's reign or Jeroboam's reign. It was someone that came way later. Okay, that's, that's important and it's going to become more important as we go. So when you are looking for background material, in this case the author, You want to read intentionally looking for the clues on what the the author or editor put there because there's enough clues for you to figure this out if you're looking for it. If you're not looking for it, then you're going to just skip it over and it's not going to hit you when you get there. If you're looking for it, you're going to make a note and go, okay, here's a clue, right? Happens every time. Now, when you go to looking for the audience, the second thing in background material, you want to, I got ahead of myself, you want to find the last possible audience. The last possible audience. So, in Kings, it's not the people in Solomon's time, Asa's time, Jeroboam's time. It's someone who went to those records and pulled them out for a different time. So, we know the book is written for someone later than that. And I'll talk about that here shortly. But, uh, so, you want the last possible audience. Whatever the last possible audience is, that is its audience. So, this is the end of Ruth. Does anybody know how the book of Ruth starts? In the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, right? Okay. That was a specific historical time in the history of Israel. This is how the book ends. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez. Prez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Whatever was going on in the book of Ruth, the author intended it to be for an audience that knew David. The setting for the book, the setting for the book is in the days when the judges ruled. That's Joshua. That's that's Samuel. Think about your biblical history. The judges ruled. Samuel came on the scene. Samuel appoints Saul. And then comes David. You've got Saul's reign and the period of the judges which lasted 40 years. So you've got 60, 70 years between the setting for the book of Ruth and the people to whom the book was written. And the only way you know that it's not written for those people but written later on is because at the end of the book he actually makes the statement uh, that this is the generations of Perez and Perez leads down to David. And the audience of Ruth, needed to know the story of Ruth because the story of Ruth tells you David is God's man. Now let me lay that out for you a little bit. Elimelech in the time of the judges, uh, there was a famine in the land by the way, and Elimelech takes his family and goes down to Moab. And he's trying to provide for his family so he leaves Israel and goes to a foreign land to provide for his family. While there, his two sons get married and then all three of the men in the family die. So whatever Elimelech was trying to do has completely collapsed and Elimelech is an absolute and total failure and a decision he thought was good was utterly bad. He left Israel, moved to Moab and his sons married pagan women bad decision. Then they all die and there's three widows left who now talk about poverty. Now talk about trouble. And you have three women, one of whom is an Israelite in a foreign land. There's nothing but misery in this story. And then she hears that the famine in Israel has passed, so she tells her two daughter-in-laws Okay, you two daughter-in-laws, I'm going to go back to my land. You go back to your land. And here's what Naomi says. May your God be kinder to you than my God was to me. What? This is a person in covenant with the eternal living God who looks at two pagan women... who who grew up in in a pagan world with a pagan God, and she who knows the true and living God looks at them and says, I hope you go back and find a husband. I hope your God is better than mine. And you have to say, what? That is totally wrong. And God says, it's totally wrong. Let me show you what I can do. And Ruth and Naomi go back to Israel. And through circumstances, unbeknownst to any of them, Ruth bumps into Boaz, and they have a son. And God provided for lowly, helpless women and gave them a son. And out of those generations, God provided a son for Israel to sit on his throne. Does that matter to us? Yes, it does. Because David had a son. And for helpless and hopeless people, God gave us his son. And you better know David is God's man. Because it leads you to Jesus does the story of ruth matter to us yes it does does the audience matter to us to capture it yes it does and it's the last possible audience because they knew david and the judges didn't it matters so you come to second chronicles now notice this is the end of second chronicles again first and second chronicles was one book and uh we divided it when we could do it in the bindings we have on our books and now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jerem might be fulfilled. So Jeremiah said something about Cyrus, and now we're going to see its fulfillment. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The book of 2 Chronicles ends with the audience, just like Ruth did. And the last audience is the people uh, who were able to leave captivity and go into or go back to the land of Israel and build them a a city and a temple there. So the audience of 1 and 2 Chronicles are people who are leaving captivity and going back because before they went into captivity, God said something through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I don't know if you've ever read 1 and 2 Chronicles, but I would encourage you to read 1 and 2 Chronicles. They're really important books, but it's going to be a real hard struggle to read 1 and 2 Chronicles because the first nine chapters are genealogy. I don't know if you've ever read nine chapters of genealogy with names you can't pronounce, but it's not Johnny and Bill and Susie. It's names that you just go, I can't pronounce these people. I don't care about these people. Who are these people? Why in the round world does God inspire this for my benefit when I can't even read it, nor do I care? But I can tell you that nine chapters of genealogy are really important if you're going to understand the audience of 1 and 2 Chronicles. Because the audience is not an independent audience. They've been living in Babylon for 70 years. But before that, before they ever went there for 70 years, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, after a 70-year captivity, Cyrus is going to let you come back. And you need to understand there's a history to this nation that resides in my word. And when you come back out of captivity and go back to the land, the history is my word. And your history comes from these people that I brought out of Egypt, that I carried through the wilderness, to whom I gave the land, to whom I sent my prophets. And you're going back to the land of my promise. Follow my word. It's the last possible audience. It explains the details. The big thing kind of gets inspiring on the details of that text. And this is a really cool one. We've talked about Judges already, and this is Judges 1830. Now, I don't know if you've read Judges, but I'm... Pretty confident that you have you just glossed over this and yet it's really important to us here's what it says and the people of dan set up the carved image for themselves and jonathan the son of gershom son of moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the danites and then the last line in this verse says until the day of the captivity of the land now what that tells us is that the people who he was writing to knew that there had been a captivity of Dan. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, Dan was the northernmost city in the northern nation of Israel and wasn't in the southern part of Israel. And the northern nation went into captivity first. And what the author is telling you is those Danites worshipped the idol that Jeroboam had made all the way up until the time of captivity. So he's writing to an audience that knew about that captivity, but they themselves were not yet in captivity. There's a 120 or 130-year span of Israelite history between the time the northern kingdom goes into captivity and the southern kingdom goes into captivity. And we now know that whoever wrote Judges wrote it to that 120-year period. And he was telling them what happened in the time of the judges and what happened to the northern kingdom because they were idolaters. And he's writing to the southern kingdom saying, you guys are doing the same things. And it won't be long if you continue down this course that you too will go into captivity so we can date the book. We know the audience. It's in the southern nation in that 120-year period in a time of idolatry. And, and if we had time, I could narrow that down and I could tell you which king was on the throne that, when the author wrote this book to the people during that particular king. And we know that based upon that line right there. The northern kingdom was in captivity. The southern kingdom was soon to go unless they repented, and changed their ways. See, that's a message we all need to hear, actually. It's a message you hear all the time. If you, if you, if you don't have a course adjustment, you're going to make a mess out of your life. You need a course adjustment. You need to, you, you need to get uh, passionate about your, rela- your covenant relationship with God, in our case, through Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you're going to mess up your life. You're you're just going to live for the wrong things. You're going to come to the end and say, oh, jeez, what a failure that was. It's a message we need to hear. They heard it with the book of the Judges. And that's pointing us to the audience. The last possible audience comes after the northern uh, nation went into captivity. Okay, so here I've walked you through two things. You're observing background material There's four steps to background material. I've walked you through two of them, author, audience, right? With the author, it's usually identified. You have to read it and identify it. Uh, You just have to read it intentionally so that you're looking for it. Uh, The audience is usually identified, but it too you're going to gloss over unless you're intentionally looking for it. So you wouldn't read Judges 18.30 and have anything jump off the page unless you were looking for clues to the audience. and Then you'd go, oh, there's a clue. So what I'm suggesting to you is if you want to find the theme and you're going to start finding that theme by looking at the background material, you're going to start reading intentionally. Now, one of the things that happens is you're going to read, let's say, the book of Ruth through the first time and you're not going to find it all. And so you're going to have to say, well, what do I do now? And I'm going to suggest you read it again. Just read it again. What does it matter? It's four chapters long. And and you might say, well, yeah, but I was reading 1 Kings and I didn't find it. I'd say, read it again. And you'd go, yeah, but it's so long. And I'd go, what does it matter? You want to learn the Word of God? Read it again and read it intentionally. What's 70 chapters? You're going to read the Bible the rest of your lives. Read the 70 chapters over again. Read it intentionally. And things will start to come alive to you. All right, so the next phase uh, is, is the, uh, the occasion or why the book was written. And so here's where you're going to be looking at uh, different pieces of the biblical text looking for uh, a reason, something in the audience that necessitates the writing of this book. Something happened that caused this book to be written. And you're gonna be looking for that. I'm gonna show you some passages that talk about the occasion or reason, okay? Here's one of them. It's uh, from the book of Philippians. And I want you to notice here that this comes in chapter four. So if you were reading, looking for background material, you would have read verses one and two You'd have identified the author, you'd have identified the audience, and then you'd keep reading and reading, looking for the occasion or the reason why it was written, and you wouldn't find that until chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, you're going to get the reason, and here's what it is. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's this passage. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the context. What? Are you going to be able to survive when persecution comes to, to Christians in America? you know that there's, there's Christians in Iran and Iraq and all over this world who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ? And they wake up every day and they say to themselves, I wonder if I'm going to be able to make it. This is their life's verse. I can do all things. I can, I can have someone hit me again. I can have someone take another meal from me. I can endure another day because I have a testimony for Jesus and God will strengthen me for this difficult time. Believe me, that time is coming in the United States. I'm going to be dead and gone before it comes, but you will not be. And you better understand when Paul wrote this verse, he was writing about that circumstance. You can face every situation if your mind is right. And you can face tough times and prosperous times and be a testimony for Jesus the whole time. But you have to have this mind right here. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. Now notice, in giving and receiving, except you only. They entered into partnership with Paul in giving and receiving. What, What did the Philippian church do? They sent him money. They were partners in the gospel, so they gave him a financial gift. What do you do when you get a gift? You write a thank you letter. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, If you were to read uh, Corinthians, you would find that the Philippian church was in desperate and dire poverty. They they were broke, and they were completely broke. They were suffering in the cause of Christ in many respects, and one of them was financially. Uh, They were poor. And out of their extreme poverty, Paul writes, they actually took an offering for Paul when he was in another location because they were partnering with the gospel. And Paul, in that context, says, you know, you've supplied my needs, and my God is going to supply your needs. And we would look at that and go, ah, that's a new pair of Nikes. Uh, The Philippians were going, no, that's tomorrow's daily bread. I can trust God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I can trust him to provide for my needs tomorrow, and I'm going to send you a gift. And so Paul, they collected an offering, sent it to Paul out of their extreme poverty, and Paul wrote them this letter and said, do you understand the value of partnering in the gospel financially? Do you understand the value? That is such a powerful lesson for you and me as we live in America, one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. We have what we call disposable income. And we're stingy with missions, or we're stingy with partnering in the gospel. But if you read Philippians, Paul's going, it's not the money. It's the fruit that comes from your gift. That's the big thing. And you will have a much healthier perspective on finances if you understand that it's a tool that bears fruit for all eternity. Your perspective on finances completely changes when you get a grasp of what Paul's teaching in Philippians. But his reason was they sent him a gift. And like every nice person does, you sent a letter back thanking them for a gift. When, When your grandmother sent you a Christmas gift last Christmas, you wrote her a thank you gift, a thank you note. Or you called her on the phone and said, thank you, Grandma. They didn't have phones in Paul's day. And he wrote Philippians. Why he wrote the book, I'm going to show you the purpose later on in the class. Okay, so here's Galatians. Now this is what happens. I showed you the author and audience. I want you to notice that this is Galatians 1. And in Galatians 1, you're going to find the reason why he wrote the book. In Philippians, it was chapter 4. In Galatians, it's chapter 1. What does that tell you? You can't just read the first chapter. You have to read the whole book. Sometimes the reason it's written is at the end. Sometimes it's front-loaded. Sometimes it's in the middle. You have to find it. You have to be intentional about finding it. But in Galatians 1, we read this, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So what was going on in Galatia? Paul went to Galatia, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He left, he moved on. Other people came behind and said, oh, you can't believe Paul. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. You can't get to heaven unless you become a Jew. Unless you commit to Moses like I'm committed to Moses, you have to keep the Ten Commandments or you will go to hell. And Paul said, I can't believe you're listening someone is distorting the gospel the gospel is the mercy of god and the grace of god in jesus christ who shed his blood for all of your sin and in christ you become acceptable to god and righteous before god apart from the law don't let anyone come in and distort the gospel And if we come back and say it's changed, or an angel claims to come from heaven and says, oh no, God changed it, let them be accursed. And if anyone, I don't care how much authority they possess, comes and says there's a different gospel, let them be accursed. There's one. Don't turn away from it. So there you have your reason. People were teaching a false gospel. So Paul's writing the book of Galatians to the... the Galatian region it's a state and there's a bunch of churches in that state and he's writing to them saying hey uh, don't let someone distort you from the true gospel now you have a reason for the book of Galatians and we're going to talk more about that also later on it's the reason it's written it's there in the book you just have to read the book looking for it now here's one and this is going to be my transition into the purpose and you're going to see this so this is going to show up twice in a row now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So those of you who believe there's a rapture coming, you're going to see that here. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Uh, if, if, you're, if you come from a, a, a dispensational model of a church, you're going to look at that as the rapture. If you come from a covenant uh, church, you're not going to look at that in that same light. But it says this. Now, concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, reading this in 2 Thessalonians, you know that someone wrote the Thessalonian church and told them the day of the Lord has come. And you missed it. So that would be like someone coming to us today and saying, You know, Jesus came back 100 years ago and you are left behind. It puts panic into your theology because you're saying, Wait a minute, Jesus promised to save me. And if he came and com- consummated his salvation and I'm not there, what happened? And and Paul's going, no, 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 Jesus hasn't come back. He hasn't consummated the salvation. You don't have to worry about it. Even if someone says we got a letter from Paul, don't believe him. That's the reason the book was written. He's writing a book to to calm their mind, their their stress, their anxiety from hearing false teaching about the day of the Lord. So if you're reading 2 Thessalonians, you're going to come to that. You're going to make a mental note. You're going to say, oh, that's why it was written. Someone was teaching them something bad. Something falls. That's your occasion. Now here's the purpose. This is what the book was intended to accomplish. So when Paul wrote these letters, he not only wrote for a reason, he hoped to make a difference. The purpose is the difference he intended to make, right? You're going to see that right here. You're going to see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. So here's what we just read. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So we would say the day of the Lord has not yet come. And look at the purpose. Let no one deceive you in any way. So if anybody tells you the day of the Lord has come and you have been left behind, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... And he starts to list some things that have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. And until those things happen, the day of the Lord isn't here, I don't care how bad the situation is, and I don't care who says what. So the book of 2 Thessalonians is written because someone was teaching them badly about the day of the Lord coming and Paul was writing to say, don't let anybody deceive you on this. Now you have your occasion and purpose. Your occasion and purpose. All right, so we're gonna, I'm gonna show you another example. Now, now here's Galatians. We saw the occasion, someone was giving them a bad gospel, telling them they had to follow the law of Moses. And Paul wrote this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. His first message is, There's only one, the one I gave you, came directly from Jesus. This is God's gospel. Any other gospel is not God's. And then over in chapter 4, He goes on and says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? How can you turn away from Jesus Christ to the law, to the weak, and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And he's writing so that they don't turn back. There's one gospel, never turn away from it. Now you guys have not even experienced the world yet. You're going to leave this school, you're going to graduate, and you're going to go off to college. And your college professor is going to utterly ridicule you for being such a stupid fool to believe the Bible? You've got to be kidding me. What kind of ignoramus are you? And Paul would say, don't turn away from the gospel. (laughs) It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's happened throughout history. It it happened in my generation, and it's going to happen to you. So don't be surprised when it comes. Just remember that there's a lot of different messages out there. There's one that came from God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, here's Peter Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities that you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Paul is saying, why am I writing these letters? I'm writing so that you will always remember this. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die right away. But I want you to remember this when I'm dead. I want you to remember it now And when I'm not here to remind you, I want you to remember it then too. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Why did Peter write it? So that after he's dead, we have the truth and we can remember it at any time. Just read 2 Peter. Open the Bible up and you can remember it. In in chapter 3, he says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now notice that the the predictions of the holy prophets are the Old Testament. The commandment of our Lord and Savior through the apostles is the New And why did Peter write 2 Peter? In fact, he says 1 and 2 Peter, this is my second letter. I want you to remember Scripture. Old and New Testaments. I've written this to encourage you to remember it, even when I'm gone. When was the last time you read Isaiah? When was the last time you read Jeremiah, Jonah, Micah? You know those clean pages in your Bible? Peter's saying, I'm writing this so that you never forget what Micah said. Huh, maybe I ought to read Micah, huh? If it's that important in the New Testament, I probably ought to get familiar with it since I'm a New Testament Christian. Thanks, let's take a break.